You know, it really seems as if we've been barraged by a bunch of grim uh, firsts in these last few weeks. We've had the first time that we've ever had a dip in the stock market like we have, the uh, first time that we've ever had this many unemployment requests. Well, I was reading recently about actually the first known suicide uh, that has believed to be caused by the global pandemic took place in southern India, actually back in early February. It's a man by the name of K. Balakrishnan was told by doctors that he had an unknown virus after falling ill. However, the 50-year-old really had become very paranoid after he picked up the virus after watching a bunch of videos online. And even though his family tried to reason with him, he just, no arguing actually helped him. Uh, even to the point where he self-quarantined and would <laughs> throw rocks at anybody who tried to come into the room with him. Eventually, he snuck out of his family home during the early morning and he ended up taking his own life. Here's the crazy thing, though. After the autopsy was performed after his death, uh, it showed that he actually didn't have the virus. And while reading that story, it just occurred to me that it's, it seems to me that fear is actually just as dangerous as the coronavirus. There's even some writers in our time who are saying that we are in just as much a pandemic of fear as we are a pandemic of COVID-19. And yet here we are today when Christians all around the world are being vigilant to hold celebrations uh, for an event that is so utterly fundamental to the Christian life, the resurrection of Jesus. But I'm kind of wondering this morning if our anticipation of this holiday, does it feel a little bit weird or awkward? Am I the only one who feels just a little self-conscious at what must look like a silly optimism to the rest of the non-Christian world? I mean, what reason would we possibly have for celebrating a holiday under these terrible circumstances when the world, it seems, is just gripped in fear? You know, I, I was thinking this week, I was born in 1967, really at the fever pitch of the uh, uh, Vietnam War. And it was amazing. We talk about how much people are divided now. I think there's actually a strong case to be made that back in the late 60s, early 70s, we might have been more so because of that war. And the divisions were there simply because there were a lot of young men that were dying in a war that at least some people in America thought was unjust and unnecessary. Well, to make matters worse, every single night, these newscasters would have the habit of posting the day's death toll from Vietnam. And I just have this vivid memory of my very first time of being confronted with the idea of death as like a four or five-year-old when every night it would come on television. It was like my first experience with the idea of death. Well, what I want to show you this morning is that there is, there is a precedent that gets established here in the verses that James just read in John 20 that is very interesting in its similarity to our present situation, emotionally speaking. Because the context is this time between Jesus' death and his resurrection, which we rarely think about, do we? The Bible, you know, when we read the Bible, we know what's coming. We know Jesus is going to rise from the dead. But here, in this locked room, separated from the rest of the world, these disciples have no idea. So I want to dive into what we learn about the power of resurrection to overcome our fears, if for no other reason that it proved itself sufficient to sustain these disciples. So three points in sort of unpacking these fears for us uh, this morning. I want to look, first of all, at the object of our fears. I want to understand the defeat of our fears. And then uh, fourth, thirdly, the neutralization of our fears. Let's dive into this first one, the object of our fears. Uh, look at verse 19 there. It simply says this, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Now look, take a second to set yourself in the context here. It's, it's Sunday night. 
Uh, and just Friday, two days ago, Jesus had been crucified. So there they are. They're all together. Um, we know that there were different kinds of people in the room. Some people were, were optimists. They heard these tales from their women about Jesus appearing. Uh, others were pessimists, doubting that they could believe anything that they, could, that they were hearing. But if you take a second to consider the emotional state of these men, um, you know, these were the men who had hopped so enthusiastically on the Jesus train. <laughs> Jesus was going to be their meal ticket because once he took power as the king of the Jews, they were going to be set. And these are blue-collar workers who had kind of tasted their first dose of real power, real influence. Jesus, even, even the demons are subject to us in your name, they would tell him. There's one story about two of the disciples kind of jockeying for seats of power with Jesus after, you know, after he had kind of finished this whole humility thing that he was up to, which, of course, deeply irritated the rest of the disciples, which means that they were all in it for the power, too. And yet here they are, huddled in a self-quarantine, terrified for their lives. In other words, what you have is a group of men who are gathered together facing their worst fears. Now, the text says that that fear was actually localized in what they call the Jews, which makes sense, of course. I mean, the Jews had just killed Jesus. I mean, what if they come for us next? What if we're the next to be lynched, they must have thought. But when you combine that fear of, of death with sort of the crashing of all your hopes and dreams, not only do you have a set of, of depressed people, but I'm assuming you have people that feel just like we do now. I don't think it's a stretch to see how we could sympathize with these people's emotional state. And you realize that's kind of what fear does, doesn't it? Look, fear is what it is because there's something that's threatened. I had something and now it's about to be lost. And so now it's time to sit in fear. In other words, fear always has an object. It's looking at something. And for these followers of Jesus, it was the Jews. But you know, we've got our own fears in, in our day, don't we? I've been kind of making a list over these last few weeks, and it occurs to me that there's a number of things. The first one is we have a fear of a loss of sustenance. I, mean, I don't know, maybe in other industries they face it all the time, but you know, most of us live in a world where my job is, is my career, um, and I'm leaning on it to kind of carry me through so I can pay for braces or save for college or whatever. And, and as Americans, we're obsessed with the economy, Right. And if we are, we're just getting rocked by this whole crisis because seriously, I mean, when was the last time that you had your job hanging over you? And so we're afraid. Second thing, I think we also fear a loss of integrity. I wonder if you felt this yet uh, or, or not. You know, my college professor wife, Ginger, has informed me, anonymously of course, we're not violating any HIPAA rules or anything, of a lot of people that are very hard at work, I mean ingeniously so, about figuring out how to game uh, the system of a weakened educational system. In other words, there are more opportunities to cheat than ever. Uh, but look, don't just point at college students. I mean, have you ever felt, have you felt yet this, this, this temptation to exploit the weaknesses in this economy for your own gain? Uh, and despite what it might do to somebody else if we did? But here's what happens. We're tempted during this time to lose our integrity because of the fear that we're facing, because we feel that we're owed some indulgence, right? Thirdly, though, there's a loss of excitement. I think we fear a loss of excitement. You know, one of the pains of being quarantined and the isolation is this realization that there's, 
maybe nothing to look forward to. I was reading a report last week that apparently pornography websites are offering free access to, to a, a premium content oh, so they can keep people at home. Um, I wonder if you felt that lure, you know, of those little um, poisoned saccharine pills that, that maybe hold out just a hint of excitement, you know, for someone who's suffering like we are, even though we know that there's death on the other side of that. We lose fear, that loss of excitement. The fourth thing I thought of is just the loss of comfort. And the truth is, we start to look and search in the times of fear for something to ease our pain. We long for comforts when they're denied us. But here's the deal. I think in the midst of all of our sort of uh, uh, attractions and allurements that we test, it makes me wonder how much alcohol is going to play a part in these weeks to come. I mean, are we going to be dealing with alcoholism on the other side of this? I mean, please remember, like, nobody ever woke up one day and decided to be an alcoholic, (laughs) And instead what happened was is loneliness began to creep in and we just found that a safe and easy place to feel comfort in moments of forgetfulness. Honestly, and think about how even our single folks are wrestling with this just as much more. How much more a temptation is for them? Number five, I think also there's a fear of a loss of security. You know, honestly, we're faced with more conversations about death than probably any of us care to have. I used to have conversations with my pastor friends about how, you know, in the West, we very, we very much have kind of a, an antiseptic, sanitized view of death, don't we, because of the modern healthcare system? But, you know, as the death toll kind of rolls up and is heralded from every single corner, I mean, what's going to be the impact on our souls just being surrounded by death? Number six, I think about also the loss of sanity. I mean, that's the final threat. I mean, what is the toll of an emotional roller coaster of fear and anger and depression and anxiety? I mean, what's it going to be like when this thing is over? Have you thought about that? To re-enter society, am I going to be able to do that? Am I too afraid to do so? I was even reading some experts this week that talked about how there's this increase in instances of child abuse <laughs> due to people who are now become unwitting homeschoolers in their own homes. Look... Forgive me, I, mean, I don't enjoy taking a trip through our sorrows any more than you do, but I do believe that there's something inherently healthy about getting to the point where we're naming our hurt, to where we're naming our fears. And the reason is, is so that we can look at them and begin the process of, of looking through for, for hope in the midst of them. Because the truth about all that, those fears is every one of those things, they're all little mini deaths, aren't they? It's as if there's a death to this life that I thought I had before this whole thing came along. There's a death to the marriage security that I thought that I had. There's this death to this financial peace that I thought I'd secured for myself. It's funerals that we're having every day inside of our own heads and hearts because of the stench that's around us. And it's the stench of death. But my point this morning is this is exactly the same fear that these disciples we're having in this upper room, locked in, quarantined from each other until something dramatic happens. And that brings me to the second point. We've seen the object of our fears, but then we need to look at the defeat of our fears. You know, verses 19 and 20 are just so wonderfully brief um, because Jesus comes and he stands in the middle of them and he says this, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Hey, y'all, this is the habit of Jesus, by the way. 
there's no way for me to count how many times in the last 25 years of pastoral ministry that I've heard people report who are in the midst of like life crushing pain and disappointment will say that the nearness of Jesus was the thing they remember the most about it. How does that happen? Well, look, I realize that for a lot of you, you're going to say, wait a minute. Yeah, when Jesus appeared to all these many folks, I mean, there's other places that said that they were absolutely terrified. And actually, that's true. But remember, there's two kinds of fear. The first kind of fear is what we just talked about, fear of loss and fear of comfort. But there's another fear that comes that's associated with the fear of losing the life that you had before you learned all this. (laughs) In other words, the fear the disciples have after seeing Jesus is because they suddenly realize that nothing can be the same after this has happened. Every single thing is going to have to be reoriented around the fact that this man is now walking among us. So here, in this huge cataclysmic moment, the disciples are realizing that their fears have all of a sudden been defeated. Nothing's going to be the same afterwards. So there's some value in asking this question, what was defeated in that moment? Well, I think there's a handful of things that get defeated in that moment. The first of all is the defeat of skepticism. Jesus comes and announces peace. A whole lot more on that in just a second. But then he shows him his hands and his side. Now, why would Jesus do that? I think it's because Jesus knows that these people are going to need proof. It is really hard to trust your senses when you're presented with something so patently illogical. We use that phrase, you know, seeing is believing. But that doesn't ring true when you're in the face of this kind of incredulity. So what he does, he shows him his hands and his side to accommodate to the weakness of their faith. And in the same way, you know, Jesus' resurrection, if you think about it, was done that really was done in the wide open. I think so much so that to argue against the reality of the resurrection makes people look foolish. Look, the, the text tells us, the Bible tells us that Jesus' resurrection was publicly attested by more than 500 people. What that means is, is that makes the fact that Christianity spread as quickly as it did in the 200 years following one of the best proofs that the resurrection actually happened. Why? Well, think about it. If that many people saw Jesus risen and the time of these documents was written with about 30 years of them happening, there would be tons of people that were still alive to falsify their claims. But here's the crazy thing. They weren't falsified. Quite the opposite A few hundred years after Jesus' death, Christianity would take over the entire Roman Empire as its official religion. There's no way that Christianity would have gotten off the ground without those early people, those early eyewitnesses. Look, here's the point. Jesus' resurrection was done in such a way that I can have my skepticism defeated and not to feel self-conscious about it. I can look and realize that there's joy to be mined from it. So our skepticism was defeated, but also it occurs to me that the sense of condemnation was defeated as well. A number of years ago, I heard Brian Sorgenfrey give a great illustration uh, that I love in this regard. He says, you know, imagine that you came upon hard times and you couldn't pay your electric bill. It's probably very applicable to us right now. And the power company eventually turns the lights out on you. Well, a friend of yours comes along and feels sorry for you, and they make a pledge to you. Hey, I want you to know I'm going to pay your electric bill. Here's the question, though. How would you know for certain that your friend had paid your electric bill? It's easy, right? Because the lights came back on. (laughs) Look, here's the point. Just two days before the disciples were witnessing not just the death of their beloved rabbi, but they were suddenly getting the first glimpse 
of just how much the God of the universe took their sin seriously. In other words, the wages of sin we know are, are, are death, eternal death, hell, hell. But here in the midst of their fear, they suddenly can know that Jesus' death on the cross has satisfied the debt that they owe, that it's really actually been paid. Because here's the point. On Easter Sunday, when Jesus walks up out of the grave, his resurrection is when the lights came on. The resurrection of God was God's way of stamping paid in full right across the world so that nobody could miss it. Now do you see why Jesus' first words are, peace be with you. That word peace there is a very familiar Hebrew word, shalom, uh, which by the way is a whole lot more than just the absence of anxiety. It's rather a very deep, powerful sense that my standing in the world is solid. It's whole. My place in this world is absolutely perfect and secure. It reminded me while I was doing this study of a passage in 1 John chapter 4, which you ought to read this afternoon with your family, where 1 John says this, verse 17, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Did you catch that? John's talking about fear uh, of judgment, of eternal judgment from God. So that when Jesus rises from the dead, it means that no matter what happens to me throughout this coronavirus plague, it can't be because I'm being punished. It can't be that. His resurrection proves that to be so. And that's why it's the heart of our peace, of our shalom, and why Jesus can announce it. A third thing that occurs to me that gets defeated in this moment is our cynicism. And this is, I'm speaking out of my own heart right now. There is a weird, sad resignation that starts to rise up inside of you when you face long bouts of fear. A number of years ago, as a joke, I bought Ginger a t-shirt when I was in New York City, a little long sleeve t-shirt. And all it says across the top of it is the word, whatever. I bought it because it's so contrary to Ginger's character. <laughs> She's got a very sunny personality, but it's just a funny t-shirt. But isn't that the attitude? Whatever. You know, what's worth doing? What's worth working for when there's this much pain and this much death surrounding us? But here's the deal. The resurrection of Jesus means that my hope is not empty. Look, you traipse through the Old Testament, you're going to find that one of the people that are judged the most are the naysayers in life or what the psalmist calls the scoffers. They're the whatever-ers of the Old Testament. And honestly, they get judged severely. Why? Because God is a God of new things. Isaiah 43, God says, Behold, I'm doing a new thing that you would barely believe if I even told you. In Revelation 21, he says, Behold, I am making all things new. And what that means then is a Christian has an instinct to look for the new, even in the midst of tragedy around me. I don't know when this thing is going to be over, but it's a Christian instinct to search for that phoenix rising up from the ashes and expect that God brings blessing out of great pain and great death. Do you feel that? So the object of our fears, and we also look at the defeat of our fears, but thirdly and finally, I want to look at the neutralizing of our fears. Again, I love how brief the passage is in verse 20. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. I chose the title of this point very self-consciously because I do believe there's a, 
I don't know, there's a version of Christianity that gets peddled out there that, that almost deals with fear like it's not really there. Um, oh, God bless you. And hey, all things work together for good. Um, it can tempt people to think that the Bible is kind of an escapist document. It, it is the least escapist document in antiquity, I promise you. But what happens to the disciples in verse 20 is not that they've had their fears eradicated, but that something else has come along which has reduced the size of their fear. The resurrection put their fear in place. It pulled the sting out of the meaning of their pain so that they can rejoice again. You know, last October, we had an interesting discussion with Dr. John Cox at our marriage conference. And I can't stop thinking about a quote that he uh, dropped during that time. When he said, you know, you really can't hope for any healing in your marriage, actually in your life for that matter, until you've learned how to be sad. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, he went on to explain that what he means is that mourning, being sad, is an indescapable reality of every Christian's life because of the world we live in. Yes, that world has resurrection in it, but it still has the effect of remaining sin. And what that means is, is maturity in Christian growth is learning to account for the brokenness in the world, to own it, while still keeping a vision of redemption firmly in our sights. And what that means is it may just be time during this Easter that we got to learn how to be sad. And last week, a wonderful article came out by a favorite theologian of mine by the name of N.T. Wright. Uh, by suggesting this article, I don't endorse everything that N.T. Wright teaches or talks about, but this article was fantastic. The title was, uh, provocatively enough, Christianity Offers No Answers About the Coronavirus. <laughs> and the little subtitle beside it says, and it's not supposed to. And what Wright goes on to explain is that it's very much of a Western uh, Christianity encrustation for people to always be constantly asking for the reasons why, that they always need an explanation. Rather, he says, it may be that what we should be doing instead is practicing the Bible's ancient practice of lament. Listen to what he says. He says, at this point, the Psalms, the Bible's own hymn book, come back into their own. Just when some churches seem to have given them up. Be gracious to me, Lord, prays the sixth psalm. For I am languishing, O Lord. Heal me, for my bones are shaking with terror. Why do you stand far off, O Lord, asks the tenth psalm plaintively. Why do you hide yourself in time of trouble? And so it goes on. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? In Psalm 13. And all the more terrifying, because Jesus himself quoted it in his agony on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like I realize that for a lot of you, you're like, yep, that's why I rejected Christianity, because it's the depressing religion that I've always thought that it was. But no, that's not true either. And you want to know why? Because at the heart of the Christian message, and in many ways, the real uniqueness of the Christian message, and the most astonishing claim of the Bible, is that this God is the one who laments and suffers with his people. Listen to right again. He says, God was devastated when his own bride, the people of Israel, turned away from him. And when God came back to his people in person, he wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. St. Paul speaks of the Holy Spirit groaning within us as we ourselves groan within the pain of the whole creation. The ancient doctrine of the Trinity teaches us to recognize the one God in the tears of Jesus and in the anguish of the Spirit. Man, can you feel that? 
I find it fascinating that Jesus did not mail his disciples a canceled death certificate. He came in person. He appeared to them. He was with them in the midst of their pain. And because he was the one who conquered their fears, they were, they were glad when he did. That's the vision of Easter that we're celebrating, the nearness of Christ. My friend Brian Habig uh, tells a wonderful story about a, a friend who was in New York City uh, a few months after 9-11. He was on the subway riding home when suddenly there was an electrical blackout citywide. You can imagine being in the subway and everything goes black. People start to scream. People freak out. But as they begin to file and make their way up out into the city, they're faced with the same darkness all around them. And so what they do is they all do exactly what they did on 9-11. They head across the Brooklyn Bridge to try to get away from any potential danger. Can you imagine what that must have been like to walk across that bridge? People calling their moms and their friends, trying to find out if everything's okay, but nobody knows really what's happening. <laughs> Habig said his friend, as he was kind of following, filing across the bridge, suddenly thought to himself, maybe this is what the terrorists want us to do. They're going to blow up the bridge. In other words, fears just compound in that moment. But all of a sudden, in the midst of the confusion and the panic, he hears the sound of some heels walking up behind him. As he turns around, he sees this, this rather large African-American woman in the midst of that whole crazy scene. And suddenly she begins to sing in this beautiful, deep gospel voice. Let me tell you about my Jesus. Hey, Big's friend said the next thing he knew, he had just grabbed the lady's hand. And in that moment of kind of clinging next to her, he was struck with joy. So she kept on singing, and somehow he said in just a few minutes, he just knew everything was going to be okay. Hey, look, is Je Jesus is going to show up for us in the midst of this time, Christian. Our job right now may be just to cry, but also to cling to him and let his voice that's saying, peace be with you, teach us how to be made glad again. One day, someday, that's what we're praying for ourselves during this time. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you then give us the grace of that, that nearness of your presence? Would you teach us very vividly exactly how it is that you can be near in a time when we are so afraid? We kind of wish we could have been in that upper room with those disciples, worried, fearful, but to be able to see you face to face. Father, we need some compensation during this time because we can't be that to each other would you allow our families, Father, maybe even your word, your Holy Spirit to bear witness of your nearness at this time? Because boy, have we ever needed it. So Father, we will cling to that and long for it during this time. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.